Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 1980s was a remarkable era for TV. It was a time when average primetime ratings reached levels rarely seen since. Dallas, Dynasty, The Cosby Show, Cheers, Miami Vice, Knight Rider, The A-Team, Family Ties. It seemed like everything was must-see TV. And you dare not miss anything unless you wanted to be completely out of the loop. But despite being an era, with some of the most popular shows in history, not everything could be a hit. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connected. And today, it's a trip back to revisit some of those lesser-known shows from the 80s that, for various reasons, just didn't last. This is a look back on 10 Forgotten TV Shows. It's hard to tell what will connect with audiences, especially during the 1980s when network TV dominated our entertainment. With only a few networks, competition was fierce. Limited time slots, especially during prime time, made it even harder for a new show to make an impact and attract viewers. There wasn't any DVR or on-demand viewing, so viewers could check you out when it was convenient for them. TV was often a one-shot deal. The VCR made recording shows while you were out possible, but you could only record one show at a time. If you already had a favorite show you didn't want to miss, it got recording priority over a new show. And during the early 80s, when not many people even owned a VCR, that was even more difficult. According to a November 1984 New York Times article, in 1984, just one in seven homes owned a VCR. This, however, represented a huge 81% increase in VCR sales from the previous year. But this was a long way off the 66% of homes that owned one by the end of the decade. Then compare this to the year 2005. According to the Washington Post, in 2005, 90% of homes owned a VCR. During the first half of the 1980s, for many homes, if you missed a show, you were out of luck. The only hope was to catch it in a rerun. And for all TV shows, there's the issue that's as old as television itself. 
Even if a new show manages to get a pilot in a first season, you never know what will stick. A show about a talking sports car and its human partner may seem kind of outlandish on paper, but Knight Rider managed to connect with audiences and averaged 17 million viewers an episode in its first year. What about a show that's just set in one place with people sitting around a bar drinking? Who would watch that? How could that be interesting? Well, Cheers turned out to be one of the most successful and most watched shows in television history. But for every A-Team, there was a show that just couldn't last. For every Miami Vice, there was a show that just didn't connect with audiences. That doesn't mean those shows were bad. Far from it. There were just too many variables to contend with. Besides less than desirable time slots, big established network shows made it even more difficult. Especially one show in particular that we'll get to in a bit. So now we turn to some of those forgotten shows of the 80s. Do you like a deep cut? Well, get ready for a bunch of them. Some of these shows you may have never known about, some you may remember, and some you may have watched but completely forgotten about. These are in no particular order, but I wanted to start with a few bonus entries. The first is called Jennifer Slept Here. Think of this show like Poltergeist in sitcom form. Debuting on NBC in 1983, Jennifer Slept Here is about a former famous movie actress who accidentally gets killed by an ice cream truck. Years later, a family moves into her former home. Jennifer haunts the house, and only the family's son, Joey, can see her. The show starred Ann Gillian as Jennifer. Jillian was in shows like Leave It to Beaver, The Twilight Zone, and The Love Boat. Joey was played by John P. Navin Jr., who also appeared in big 80s shows like Silver Spoons, The Facts of Life, Cheers, and played Cousin Dale in National Lampoon's Vacation. Jennifer Slept Here aired on Friday nights and had the unfortunate task of going up against big-time shows like Webster and The Dukes of Hazard. In the end, Jennifer Slept Here only lasted for one season of 13 episodes. For our next bonus entry, we go all the way back to the very start of the decade and the show 10 Speed and Brown Shoe. Debuting in January 1980 on ABC and heavily promoted, this detective comedy was created by people who worked on the very popular show the Rockford Files. 10 Speed and Brown Shoe gave us a pretty unique pairing as it starred Ben Vereen as E.L. 10 Speed Turner and Jeff Goldblum as Lionel Brown Shoe Whitney. The premise is about one con man and the other a wannabe private eye who team up to fight crime. The series featured some high-end creative talent and Ben Vereen was well-known for appearances on the stage, 
big screen and television. 10 Speed and Brown Shoe had the unfortunate task of airing on Sunday nights, which meant going up against then powerhouse CBS and their shows like Archie Bunker's Place and One Day at a Time. On NBC, there was the wonderful world of Disney and Chips. 10 Speed and Brown Shoe was canceled after one season, but according to IMDb, it was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Drama Series, along with an Edgar Allan Poe Award, and won a Writers Guild of America Award for the two-part pilot. And as it pertains to this podcast, the music for 10 Speed and Brown Shoe was composed by Mike Post, who was the producer of a unique project that I have a previous episode about, the science fiction rock band from Disney called Halix. Let's officially start our list by going back to that glorious year called 1985. The 80s was an era that gave us unique cars that seemed like characters in their own right. Besides Kit from Knight Rider, there was the A-Team van, Magnum P.I.'s Ferrari, Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters, the Batmobile, and the DeLorean from Back to the Future. But there wasn't anything representing motorcycles. Enter the show, Street Hawk. This is Jesse Mock, an ex-motorcycle cop injured in the line of duty, now a police troubleshooter. He's been recruited for a top-secret government mission to ride Street Hawk, an all-terrain attack motorcycle designed to fight urban crime. Like any good 1980s TV show, the premise of the show is explained right in the intro. Jesse Mock now rides Street Hawk to fight urban crime. So Street Hawk was a bit like Knight Rider meets the A-Team. At the center of the show was a pretty incredible motorcycle that could travel up to 300 miles per hour, but was also armed with weapons. With electronic theme music composed by the legendary group Tangerine Dream, Street Hawk seemed like a show that could have a long run. But after debuting in January 1985 on ABC, it only lasted for one season. Street Hawk was developed by Bruce Lansbury, brother of Angela, and he also helped develop Knight Rider. The pilot episode of Street Hawk even featured a pre-Back to the Future Doc Brown himself, Christopher Lloyd. The second episode starred a young George Clooney, who was just in his early 20s. But Street Hawk had an absolute nightmare of a time slot. The show aired on NBC Friday nights at 9 p.m. If you were of a certain age in 1985, you know that the Friday night 9 p.m. time slot was one of the most powerful in the decade. If you know your network time slot history, you know where this is going. Let's take January 25, 1985 as an example, as Street Hawk had to go up against powerhouse shows Dallas on CBS and Miami Vice on ABC. Back in 1985, Dallas also had the Dukes of Hazard as its lead-in and was followed by Falcon Crest, making this an unmissable time block of shows. Street Hawk did have Webster as its lead-in, which definitely didn't hurt. According to Den of Geek, Street Hawk was syndicated to 42 different countries, 
And you may remember it well if you grew up in the UK back then. There was a lot of merchandise released for Streethawk, but ultimately, it was just a very expensive show to produce and ended in May 1985 after just 14 episodes. The 1980s was a time of Cold War tension, but one unique performer was able to relieve some of that tension with his unique take on Soviet life and humor. And that is friend of the podcast, Yakov Smirnov. Smirnov was a big hit in the 80s, and you would often see him appear on late night talk shows and commercials. His popularity also led to some famous catchphrases, including one that would be the name of his own sitcom called What a Country. What a Country is set in a class for recent immigrants to the United States. The students are all trying to pass their citizenship test, and one of those students is a Russian taxi driver named Nikola, played by Yakov Smirnov. Like Three's Company, The Office, House of Cards, Sanford and Son, and All in the Family, What a Country was based on an original British show called Mind Your Language. What a Country debuted in September 1986 for first-run syndication with 26 episodes released. I definitely remember this show because I loved Yakov Smirnov and his unique type of humor. What a Country also featured Harry Waters Jr. in the role of Robert. You may remember Harry Waters Jr. as Marvin. Marvin Berry, you know, the cousin of Chuck Berry from Back to the Future. After 10 episodes of What a Country, the legendary Don Knotts then joined the cast as the new principal. The 1980s gave us some very cool science fiction style TV shows like Knight Rider, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, Quantum Leap, and a show I just mentioned, Street Hawk. In 1982, Disney released a pretty groundbreaking movie that used cutting-edge computer technology and featured the main characters transported into a digital world. That movie was Tron, and it has a big influence on our next show called Auto Man. Auto Man is about Walter, the computer expert of a police department. His work isn't respected by his superiors, and to show them how important computers are, Walter creates Automan, an AI creation that not only looks and sounds real, but can take on an actual physical presence. Automan and Walter now team up to fight crime throughout the city, kind of like Robocop meets Tron. If you're old enough to remember Auto Man, you probably remember what a big deal it was, as it was like Tron coming to the small screen. The show also featured that same visual style now made famous by Tron. But instead of humans going into a digital world, a digital character enters our human world. 
Automan starred Desi Arnaz Jr., the son of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, along with Chuck Wagner as Automan. Automan was developed by big-time producer Glenn Larson, who brought us shows like Battlestar Galactica, Buck Rogers in the 25th Century, Knight Rider, Magnum P.I., and The Fall Guy. This was a big project, and a lot of money went into the creation and production of Automan, especially into the cutting-edge technology. Automan had a sidekick, if you will, named Cursor that could draw anything and bring it to life, like a holographic-looking Lamborghini or a helicopter. Walter could also step into Automan and wear him as a suit, kind of like Tony Stark in Iron Man. Automan debuted in December 1983 on ABC. Thursday, America's newest superhero becomes a crime boss. If you get in my way, he'd be eliminated. And he gives the syndicate a run for its money. You gotta stop it, Otto. We'll take everything I've got, Walter. Automan. I remember the promos for Automan like it was yesterday, and this thing was shaping up to be the next Knight Rider. With high expectations, some merchandise was already being developed, but the show just didn't take. Automan ran for just one season of 12 episodes, even though 13 were made before it was canceled. The show was incredibly expensive to produce and just not enough people were watching, even though the ratings it got would make it the most watched show on TV today by a country mile. But at this point in the 80s, it just wasn't enough to keep up. If you grew up in the 80s, you probably remember what an impact the Police Academy movies had on the world of entertainment and comedy. The first Police Academy came out in 1984 and was followed by five more editions during the 80s. Basically, from 1984 to the end of the decade, there was a new Police Academy every year. Even though it wasn't a direct spin-off, the show The Last Precinct was Police Academy inspired. The show, starring the true Batman himself, Adam West, is about a police captain and his misfit group of Police Academy rejects. The last precinct seemed to have a good foundation to it. It not only starred Adam West, but also Ernie Hudson, who played Winston in Ghostbusters. And the show seemed like a cross between Police Academy and Police Squad. The Last Precinct was also created by Stephen Cannell, the creator of such things as The Rockford Files, The A-Team, and 21 Jump Street. Early reviews seem promising. The Ottawa Citizen called The Last Precinct, a sitcom that was also unique for being an hour long, one of the most interesting new projects coming down the pipeline. The Last Precinct even got a cushy debut time slot premiering in January 1986, right after Super Bowl XX. But the show only lasted a few months and just seven episodes. 
And coming up next is a sitcom from 1984 with not only a unique premise, but starring a unique new actor. At the time, not many people knew of him, but he would go on to become one of the most famous performers in history. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How does a show about a young cartoonist working for a low-budget cartoon studio sound? What if it featured one of the most famous voice actors of all time? And what if it starred a then-unknown but unique performer in his very first starring role? Well, this all resulted in a unique show from 1984 called The Duck Factory. The Duck Factory is about Skip Tarkington, a cartoonist who goes to work for the lower-budget Buddy Winkler Animation Production Company. Their main show is called The Dippy Duck Show, and The Duck Factory is a show about what life at a cartoon studio is like. Speaking of cartoons, The Duck Factory starred a Canadian performer who would be known for his cartoonish-like slapstick humor. The Duck Factory was the very first starring role for Jim Carrey. The character of Wally, a voice actor who also performs the voice of Dippy Duck, was performed by Don Messick. Messick is a legendary voice talent and was the voice of Bam Bam Rubble, Astro on the Jetsons, Boo Boo Bear, Papa Smurf and Asriel on the Smurfs, and possibly his most famous role, Scooby-Doo. The Duck Factory was already unique, and even more so because Don Messick rarely appeared in real-life roles. The Duck Factory debuted in April 1984 on NBC. The critics and the fans agree, the Duck Factory's a hit. A comic gem, and just what the doctor ordered. We did it! It's stylishly different, and brimming with likable characters. Well, they're terrific. Jim Carrey is a major find. Congratulations! To the whole gang at the Duck Factory, Thursday. Besides Don Messick, another notable voice actor from the 1980s appeared on the Duck Factory. In episode 10 called The Duck Stops Here, Frank Megatron Welker guest stars as a rival voice actor. And this created an interesting dynamic, as not only did Don Messick provide the voice of Scooby-Doo, but Frank Welker was the voice of Fred Jones on Scooby-Doo. The Duck Factory also starred Teresa Ganzel, and if you grew up watching The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you may remember her as the matinee lady in the Tea Time movie sketches. Despite a unique premise, a ton of talent on board, and also winning two Emmys for design, 
The Duck Factory only lasted for 13 episodes, finishing in July 1984. The next forgotten show is one I remember all too well because the brief portions of what I saw actually freaked me out. It comes from 1983 and is called Manimal. Manimal was a science fiction style superhero show about Jonathan Chase who can shapeshift and turn into any animal he wants. He uses this supernatural ability to help fight crime. But how did he get this ability? Was Jonathan Chase some sort of missing link? Well, it turns out that on a missionary trip with his father, Jonathan's father is murdered, but turns into a hawk. Jonathan's father then passes this ability on to his son. Jonathan then spends years learning the ins and outs of transforming from a human to an animal. Manimal is a bit Incredible Hulk meets Thriller. It starred Simon McCorkendale as Jonathan Chase and Canadian Melody Anderson as Brooke one of only two people who know about Jonathan's remarkable ability. Melody Anderson also played Dale in the Flash Gordon movie from 1980. Manimal, tagline, a man with the brightest of futures, a man with the darkest of paths, was another Glenn Larson production, so there were high hopes surrounding it. According to another friend of the podcast, Dan Larson from the Secret Galaxy YouTube channel, Manimal was even filming alongside the show Auto Man. And Manimal was released on NBC alongside the first show we covered, Jennifer Slept Here. The debut was in September 1983 with a full 90-minute pilot episode. But there was one big problem. Manimal aired Friday nights at 8.30. And if you recall from earlier about the Friday night time slot, that meant going up against Dallas. Even though it wasn't pulling in the ratings numbers of the Who Shot JR days, Dallas was still the number one show on TV and had more than double the rating and audience share of Manimal. After just eight episodes, Manimal was cancelled. It's hard to overstate just how big Dallas was at this point in the 80s. For many households with just one TV and the VCR not entirely commonplace yet, missing Dallas was just not an option. Manimal did have some great special effects though, created by the legendary Stan Winston, but it just wasn't able to break through. Next, we have another Glenn Larson creation that starred Sam Jones, who played Flash Gordon. It's an action-adventure series that takes place in the near future called The Highwayman. They are known simply as Highwaymen. 
The Highwayman had a bit of a Mad Max feel to it as each Highwayman has their own unique truck. The trucks are similar to Kit from Knight Rider in that they are highly computerized, extremely high tech and equipped with weapons. Produced by 20th Century Fox, The Highwayman debuted on NBC in September 1987. The series also featured Mark Jackson, whom Australians would know as Australian rules footballer Jacko. The 1980s was that era of cinematic TV shows that felt like watching a movie during prime time. Knight Rider was one of the definitive examples of this and it made sense to try to replicate it with other cinematic shows. The Highwayman, with its combination of Mad Max and Knight Rider, seemed like it should capture a similar and quite large audience as Knight Rider. The trucks featured in The Highwayman were pretty amazing. It starred Flash Gordon and had that dystopian feel to it. It should have resonated with audiences, but that just didn't happen. For one thing, the pilot was quite different from the regular episodes, both in cast and format. The episodes were also expensive to produce, and The Highwayman lasted just nine episodes, finishing in April 1988. We all know the legendary story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. One of the most famous characters from the legend of King Arthur is the mythical and magical Merlin. So what about a sitcom that's based on him? That's what we got in 1981 with the show Mr. Merlin. This show is about Merlin the Wizard who finds himself living in modern-day San Francisco. But how does this mythical character from medieval times navigate this strange, modern world? Well, he assumes the role of Max Merlin, a mechanic. But Merlin is still Merlin and needs to take on an apprentice. That turns out to be the character Zack, who is an apprentice for him at the garage. But then, one day, Zack manages to pull a crowbar out of a bucket of cement. The crowbar turns out to be Excalibur, and Merlin has no choice but to reveal his true identity to his new apprentice. Mr. Merlin starred Barnard Hughes as Merlin. Hughes was also in movies like Tron and The Lost Boys. Zack was played by Clark Brandon who appeared on shows like Fantasy Island, The Facts of Life, The Love Boat, and the ABC after-school special, It's Not Easy Being a Millionaire. Mr. Merlin also starred Phil Morris, who went on to play lawyer Jackie Childs on Seinfeld. Mr. Merlin debuted in October 1981 on CBS. This was a show for the whole family, as it was funny and pretty heartwarming. Mr. Merlin lasted for an entire season of 22 episodes, but that's as far as it went, finishing in March 1982. 
Our second last entry comes from 1987. It's about a half-alien, half-girl, and even features the voice of Burt Reynolds, a show called Out of This World. Out of This World was a fantasy sitcom released for syndication. The premise is about a girl named Evie, and on her 13th birthday, she discovers that her father is an alien. Realizing she is half-alien, Evie discovers superhuman powers, which often get her in trouble. Besides fixing the messes caused by her powers, Evie and her family have to keep her true identity a secret. It's kind of like the TV show Small Wonder, but with an alien instead of a robot. This is one of those shows I had completely forgotten about, but after watching a few of them, it all came flooding back. The intro for Out of This World featured some CGI-looking spaceships and planets all set to a modern version of the song Swinging on a Star. Out of This World starred Maureen Flanagan as Evie and Donna Peskow as her mother. Evie's father is on another planet, but on Earth, communicates through a glowing space cube with Burt Reynolds performing the voice. Hello, sweetheart. Ah, One of the notable things about Out of This World is it actually had a decent run. Beginning in September 1987 and lasting for four seasons, and nearly a hundred episodes. If you grew up watching this show, you may have remembered popular guest stars, including Scott Baio, the singer Tiffany, Florence Henderson, and even Mr. T. And last but not least is a show that had quite a devoted following, with fans believing it deserved a longer run. It came out in 1985 and starred Courtney Cox in her first main role. It was a show about a group of people with superpowers, and it was called The Misfits of Science. The Misfits of Science sounds like the X-Men as not only does the group have superhuman abilities, but they are formed by a leader named Dr. Billy Hayes who runs a center for people who have unusual abilities that they cannot control. Courtney Cox, who had become recognizable after her appearance in the video for Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark, plays Gloria a teenager with telekinetic abilities. According to IMDb, Cox was auditioning for another TV show when she saw the auditions for Misfits of Science across the hall and decided to try out for it. Mark Thomas Miller plays Johnny Burkowski, a rock musician who was electrocuted on stage and now has strange electrical powers. Mickey Jones plays Beef the Iceman and has the ability to freeze anything he touches. There is also Dr. Elvin Lincoln, a friend of Dr. Billy, 
who can shrink from his height of 7 foot 4 down to just a few inches. Dr. Alvin was played by Kevin Peter Hall, who was actually 7 foot 2. Not only did Hall play the role of Predator in the 1987 movie and the sequel, but he was also Harry in the Harry and the Hendersons movie and TV series. You may also remember Hall from shows like Night Court, The Dukes of Hazard, and an appearance in Big Top Pee Wee. The director of the Institute that keeps the misfits of science is named Dick Stepmeyer, and he was played by Max Wright, who went on to play Willie Tanner on ALF. Misfits of Science debuted in October 1985 on NBC, and in a pre-Avengers X-Men MCU world, was a compelling idea for a TV show. It was science fiction, it featured superheroes, but it was still a bit of a comedy with dramatic moments. Part of the premise is that the team fights crime, but is also overseen by the largest defense contractor in the U.S. who wants them to create things for commercial interest. Like some other shows in this episode, Misfits of Science also had to go up against Dallas on Friday nights. When it debuted in October 1985, Misfits of Science began with a two-hour premiere. An October 4, 1985 New York Times review said of the head-to-head competition that, quote, Dallas needn't fret, unquote. But Misfits of Science wasn't trying to go after the Dallas crowd. This was like a comic book come to life. In the October New York Times article, Misfits of Science is regarded as having, quote, the style and substance of a cartoon, something on the order of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, unquote. But again, this was the intent. Misfits of Science didn't want the Dallas audience, they wanted the kids of the Dallas audience. Brandon Tartikoff, then president of NBC, wanted Misfits of Science to feel like watching Ghostbusters on a Friday night. The pilot episode of Misfits of Science even feels quite Ghostbusters-ish, including the use of a 1959 Cadillac Miller Meteor Sentinel Ambulance. That's the same car used for Ecto-1 in Ghostbusters. But you know how this goes. Misfits of Science didn't last, finishing in February 1986. 16 episodes were made, but just 15 aired. One of the big takeaways from this episode is that you can probably see how powerful the show Dallas really was. Not only did it dominate ratings and the public consciousness, but it seemingly laid waste to many of these forgotten shows that had to go up against it. These shows may have stood a much better chance today as there are an endless amount of channels and streaming platforms available to find an audience. Back in the 80s, this just wasn't an option. Limited time slots, massive competition, and if your household was like mine growing up, just one TV made it too difficult for these shows to make an impact. 
but these forgotten TV shows of the 1980s are an interesting look back on a unique and creative time when networks were more willing to take a chance on something unique. For many of these shows, the 1980s really was the only time period they could exist. Today, they live on in the memories of fans who embrace them for what they were. Some of these may have even been your favorite show ever. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for other episodes similar to this one, I have a bunch of previous episodes devoted to TV in the 80s. Here are just a few of my previous episodes mentioned throughout this one. I have shows about Knight Rider, The A-Team, Yakov Smirnoff, the 10 best sitcoms of the 80s, ALF, and Miami Vice. But that's just a small sampling as there are plenty of previous shows for you to dive back into to rediscover the 80s. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you're in a position to help support the show, you can consider becoming a member of patreon.com. That's the platform to get access to bonus audio content like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast, where I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. So if you want to check that out or learn more, just head on over to patreon.com slash 80s. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash 80s. So that's it for me. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it. <laughs>